Hello and welcome to Understanding Christianity, a new podcast. I'm your host, Sean Cole. I'm the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as a professor at Colorado Christian University, and we are looking at the foundations of the faith and This podcast exists to help you as a listener understand the distinctives of Christianity. And in one of the earlier podcasts, we talked about the role of the scriptures and what the Bible says about itself and that everything that we believe about Christ and God and Christianity comes specifically from the authority of the Bible. And so today's podcast is going to deal with the doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity is a foundational doctrine that really sets Christianity apart from other world religions and other um, heresies and belief systems that are out there. And so I want you to join in a teaching that I did related to the Trinity. What is the doctrine of the Trinity? What are some of the ancient heresies that misunderstood or got the Trinity wrong? And how are those prevalent in modern-day cults and world religions. And so I want you to join in and listen to this teaching on the doctrine of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. Here's the podcast. In the last session, in session one, we talked about the importance of starting with Scripture, that the Scripture is inspired, it's God-breathed, that it's inerrant, it's without errors, and it's authoritative, and the Scripture has a fixed meaning, and the Scriptures reveal to us who God is. We talked about general revelation, that you can look up at nature and know that there's a God, and then specific revelation or special revelation in the Word of God. So I want to begin with a very interesting question as we talk about the nature of God. And the question is basically this, is there such a thing as an atheist? Some people will say, you know, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. Is that a true statement? Is there such a thing as a true atheist? What I want us to do is to look at our Bibles in Romans chapter 1. And I want to follow Paul's argument that he lays forth about this very question. And let's just talk about this as we start our discussion on the nature of God. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18... Paul writes this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. What God has done is He's revealed Himself in nature. And Paul says that God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. You can look at the mountains or the stars or the sun and moon and sky, and you can look around and you know intrinsically all humans everywhere that there is a creator. But here's what's happened. 
That verse 18 says that men have suppressed or pushed down that truth and unrighteousness. And what they've done is instead of worshiping and glorifying God, they suppress the truth about God. And what pops up in its place is idolatry. And so men and women replace God with an idol. An idol can be something that they've created with their own hands, um, images of of man, images of birds, reptiles, uh, or it could be something they think up in their mind. But, But human beings have exchanged the glory of God for idols, and they've suppressed that truth. So in reality, and Paul says they're without excuse. And so in reality, there's not really such a thing as an atheist. Now, people may say they don't believe in God, but deep in their heart, deep in their soul, they know that there is a God by just looking at creation, but they've suppressed that truth and they've replaced it with something else, an idol, which dishonors God. And so we want to start from the very beginning and say that God has clearly made himself knowable in creation, but he's also made himself knowable in the written word of God. And so what we want to start with is we want to start with the doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity. Now the word Trinity does not show up in the Bible. So if you go look in a concordance and try to find the word Trinity, you're not going to find the word Trinity. It it is a word that's been developed by theologians in the early church to define and to describe what the Bible teaches about God. So let me give you a definition of the Trinity. There's one God within the one being of God, one one God in essence. There exists three distinct persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all three are co-equal and co-eternal. So what I want to do is I want to draw a diagram here. Maybe you can see this. Those of you that are good at math, this is an equilateral triangle. I I could have drawn a a three-legged stool. And if you take one of the legs out of the stool, it's going to topple over. The same thing if you take one of the sides out of the triangle, it ceases to be a triangle. And so what I want you to think about, there are three truths, three bedrock truths that help us to understand the doctrine of the Trinity. And if any of these three truths are not included in the definition of the Trinity, we've gone beyond what the Bible teaches. We've gone into heresy. The early church grappled with many of these issues. We've gone outside the bounds of Orthodox Christianity. So let's talk about these three bedrock truths that have to be present when we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. Here's the first. The first is that there is one God. We call this monotheism. Mono meaning one, theos, God, monotheism, within the one being that is God. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, the Shema says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. The Bible teaches there's one God. God is one in what we would call essence or substance. I go to India a lot on mission trips, and India is plagued by Hinduism. And Hinduism worships millions of different gods. 
different gods for all different things. And so that's not Christianity. In Christianity, we have to start with bedrock truth number one. There is one God, one in substance, one in essence, one in being, whatever terminology you want to use there. One in essence, one in substance, or one in being. Now, the other bedrock truth that we've got to understand in regards to the Trinity is that, here's number two, there are three distinct persons. And we use the word persons very carefully. We don't use the word uh, manifestations. We don't use the word um, expressions. We use the term persons. There are three distinct persons within the Godhead, within the one being that's God. And these persons are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the Great Commission passage in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus says, Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I will be with you always until the end of the age. The, the three persons of the Trinity are listed there in the Great Commission. But I want you to think about Jesus' baptism for a moment. At the baptism of Jesus. At the baptism of Jesus, you've got Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, in bodily form. So Jesus is in a physical body. He's the, the physical um, incarnation of God in the flesh. So Jesus was physically being baptized. Okay, there was a voice from heaven. The voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. So who's speaking there? It's the Father speaking a blessing over His Son, Jesus, while Jesus is getting baptized. And so there's two distinct persons there. Unless Jesus is a ventriloquist and He's throwing His voice. So the Father is a distinct person. He's speaking a blessing over His Son, Jesus, who's physically being baptized. And then we also know from the Scripture that the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. And so you have three distinct persons. Now there's a heresy called modalism. Modalism is a heresy that basically denies the distinct persons of the Trinity. What modalism would say is that they're all three the same person. So in the Old Testament, it was the Father. In the New Testament, it was Jesus. And now it's just the Holy Spirit. It's really one person and they play three different roles. For example, like I'm a father to my two sons. I am a husband to my wife, and I am a child to my parents. And so I play, I'm the same person, Sean Cole, but I play three different roles. At sometimes I'm a husband, at sometimes I'm a father, and at sometimes I'm a son, but I'm still the same person. That's not the Trinity. The Trinity says within the one being that is God, there are three distinct persons. And so the Father is not the same person as the Son. Jesus. Did the Father die on the cross? No. Jesus is the only member of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, to actually physically have a body. Jesus died on the cross. Did the Holy Spirit die on the cross? No. The Holy Spirit is a spirit. Is Jesus the same person as the Holy Spirit? No. There are three distinct persons. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Now, they all share equality with the same substance or essence of God. And so the Father is God, 
Jesus the Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. There's still one God in essence and substance, but they exist in three distinct persons. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Modalism basically says that the the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are three modes or manifestations of the same person. That's a heresy. Now, the third bedrock truth that we have is equality and eternality, meaning that all three persons of the Trinity are co-equal and co-eternal, which means that the Father has always existed in eternity past, Jesus has always existed in eternity past, the Holy Spirit has always existed in eternity past. All three persons are eternal, and all three persons are equal. It, it doesn't, the, the Trinity is not where the Father is somehow greater or more important than Jesus, and Jesus is subordinate to the Father, or the Holy Spirit is subordinate to Jesus. There's another heresy called subordinationism. Subordinationism is the idea that there's a hierarchy in levels of the Trinity. So the Father is number one, and then Jesus is lower, and then the Holy Spirit's third. That's not the Trinity. They're, they're co-equal. For example, in the cult that the Jehovah's Witnesses have espoused, they believe that the Father, or Yahweh, is the only God. Jesus is a created being, and He's subservient or subordinate to the Father. And they also believe the Holy Spirit's not a person, but it's just a force. It's not even a He, it's an It. So that's a heresy. They are co-equal and co-eternal. Now, they they perform different functions, obviously. The Father is the one who sends Jesus. Jesus is the one who comes in the flesh and dies on the cross. And then He goes back up to heaven, and Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to empower us and to live within us. So, yes, there's three different roles and and different things that the, the, the different persons of the Trinity accomplish, but in their essence... In their essence, they are co-equal and co-eternal. The word that we want to use here is ontologically. And that's, that's, a, that's a theological word you want to be familiar with. Ontology or ontologically it basically means in existence. Ontologically, in being, in substance, in person, there's one God. Three distinct persons the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They're distinct persons. Yet all three persons are co-equal and co-eternal. That's the definition of the Trinity. Now, when you um, are in Sunday school and you try to explain the Trinity to people, sometimes people will use analogies like the egg. The egg's got a shell, the egg's got yolk, and the egg's got the white, but it's still one egg. Or or water. Sometimes it's water, sometimes it's ice, sometimes it's vapor. Um, Those analogies all break down. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to put the eternal, magnificent, powerful God down into human types of analogies that all break down. So the best thing I tell people is don't, don't give analogies, just give the definition. Within the one being that's God, God is one in being, Yet He exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and all three persons are co-equal and co-eternal. Now, we may not fully understand the doctrine of the Trinity. It may be very hard to wrap our minds around, but we need to believe it because the Scriptures clearly teach it. 2 Corinthians 3.14, the very last verse of 2 Corinthians, refers to all three persons of the Trinity. 
a beautiful little conclusion that Paul has to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay, so the grace of Jesus, the Son, and the love of God, God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. So you've got God the Father, Jesus the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All three distinct persons, but yet share the same essence or being or substance as God. So we want to start with the Trinity. It's sometimes hard to understand the Trinity, but it's a truth that we need to wrap our minds around and fully um, come to grips with. We may not fully understand it, but we need to be able to define it, to articulate it, and to believe it. Now, I will just say this. The early creeds like the, um, the Chalcedon Creed and the Athanasian Creed and those early Christian creeds codify or, or articulate the doctrine of the Trinity very, very well. And so you'll need to look up those creeds, especially the Athanasian Creed, which really defines the doctrine of the Trinity. And Roman Catholics and Protestants and all people that are Orthodox Christians throughout the world for the past 2,000 years have adhered to this doctrine of the Trinity. And so if you take out any three of these key elements, so if you take out one God, you end up with polytheism. That's not the Trinity. If you take out three distinct persons... That's modalism. That, that's a heresy. If you take out the co-eternality and co-equality, you've got subordinationism. That's a heresy. All of the heresies of the early church in like the three to four hundreds A.D., all of those heresies dealt with removing one of those aspects of the Trinity. So let's talk about some of the characteristics of the natures of God. One of the things that we need to really understand about God, first and foremost, besides just the Trinity, is that... The Bible teaches that God is absolutely holy. Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. If there's one overarching characteristic about God that defines all other characteristics, it's His holiness. The Bible never says God is love, love, love. God is grace, grace, grace. God is just, just, just. Those things are true. But the Bible repeats holy, holy, holy three times. And the repetition of the three holy, holy, holy is meant to give emphasis. And so the holiness of God dictates all other attributes of God. His holiness, His eternality, His love, His grace, His mercy, His justice, His power is holy. And holy means God is transcendent. God is infinitely other. He's separate. He's distinct. He's wholly separate from us. Listen to Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. I am God. There is no other. I am God. There's none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I love this quote from theologian R.C. Sproul. Listen to what he says. This is from his book, The Holiness of God. He says, when the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendentally separate. He's so far above and beyond us that He seems almost totally foreign to us. God is too great for us. He's too awesome. He makes difficult demands on us. He's the mysterious stranger who threatens our security. In His presence, we quake and tremble. Meeting Him personally may be our greatest trauma. Now, through Christ Jesus, we can approach this holy and infinitely majestic God. But without Christ, He's a consuming fire. God is infinitely 
matchless and holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's morally perfect in Him. There is no darkness at all. 1 John 1.5, this is the message we've heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in Him there's no darkness at all. So God is Trinitarian, and as we go through the study, we'll look at the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We're, we're kind of focusing in here on the Father, and then we'll get to Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit eventually. Um, but, but it starts with the holiness of God. But we also understand that God is creator. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That Hebrew word create, bara. It means to create out of nothing, ex nihilo. God created out of nothing. He's already on the scene. He's, he's eternal. He's already there. God is the creator. Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God is creator. Now, here's where the rub comes when it comes to humanity. Because God is the creator, He has ownership over our lives. And He has the right by sovereign authority as the king to tell us how to live and what to believe because He has created us. Now, there's some other glorious attributes of God that, that we could spend a long time talking about. Uh, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. He's omniscient. He knows all things, including past, present, and future, everything actual and potential. He's omnipotent, meaning He's all-powerful. He can do all things. He's unchangeable. He's eternal. He's love. He's goodness. He's truth. He's justice. He's mercy. He's beauty. Uh, there's so many different attributes of God. But I want to focus on two attributes that sometimes we often don't really talk about in Christian circles. Everybody really talks about the fact that God is love. And, and yes, that is a key feature of God's character. God is love. God is merciful. As a matter of fact, in Exodus chapter 34, Moses wants to see all of the glory of God. And God says, you can't see my glory, but I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. And God's backside glory passes over. And God announces for the very first time in, in the Old Testament. And this, this is repeated all throughout the, the Old Testament. And then we, we find it in the New Testament. God reveal, reveals His character. It says, the Lord, the Lord, He is slow to anger. He's merciful and gracious. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's in faithfulness. He's, he's willing to forgive. And so God is gracious. God is merciful. God is loving. God is, is, is compassionate upon His people. And so we want to never, never, never downplay the absolute mercy and grace and love of God for His creation and specifically for His people. But there's two attributes of God that we sometimes don't want to talk about. So I'm going to talk about those just to kind of get you familiar with uh, two neglected attributes. And, and these two attributes that we want to talk about is that the wrath of God and the jealousy of God. You probably don't hear a lot of sermons or a lot of teaching on the, the wrath of God or God being a jealous God. We just looked at a passage of Scripture in Romans 1.18 where it says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so we have a scripture that says God's wrath is coming upon people who are idolaters. 
And because God is absolutely holy, because He's infinitely majestic and powerful, and in Him there's no darkness at all, God has to, by His very nature, respond with fierce opposition to sin. Colossians 3, 5-6 Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So the Bible is very clear that God exercises wrath. Now, it's going to be fully exercised in hell on that final day when people are going to be thrown into the lake of fire if they've not trusted Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, for salvation. And we've seen in the Old Testament where times where God has executed wrath, for example, in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so all throughout the Scriptures, it teaches about the wrath of God. Now, what is God's wrath? Does it mean that God's out of control and had a bad hair day? (laughs) Does it mean that God's like Zeus who has human type of anger and he's just out there throwing lightning bolts because he really got ticked off or, or, or God's like a little child in the corner that's crying because you took away his toys. Those are human expressions of wrath where we get mad, we get angry, we get infantile, we, we have bad hair day, we fly off the handle and it's out of sin that we get angry. But remember, God is holy and so everything he does is perfect, righteous and holy. Let me give you a quote from J.I. Packer. He says this, God's wrath is not the capricious, arbitrary, bad-tempered, and conceited anger that pagans attribute to their gods, like, like Zeus or whatever. He also says it's not the sinful, resentful, malicious, infantile anger that we find among humans. Here's what he says it is. It is a function of the holiness which is expressed in the demands of God's moral law. It is a righteous anger. In other words, it comes because God is a moral being, He is righteous, and He has to respond in righteous anger to sin in all of its manifestations. John Stott says the wrath of God is His steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. John Piper says this, Our nature is so rebellious and so selfish and so callous toward the majesty of God that His holy anger is a natural and right response to us. So God cannot tolerate sin. God must punish sin. God is a God who exercises wrath. Now that needs to be balanced with the fact that God is also slow to anger. Romans 2.4 says God's patience is meant to lead us to repentance. And so if we get these things out of balance where we elevate one characteristic of God above another, we're out of balance. A lot of people, if you, if you elevate the love of God and the mercy of God, and that's all you talk about, and you elevate that as a chief characteristic, then you can become kind of sappy and emotional and, and really downplay sin and not confront people in their sin and call people to repentance. Because after all, God just loves everybody. and You can kind of do whatever you want because after all, at the end of the day, God's just this grandfather up in the sky that just loves everybody. Is God love? Yes. But is He also a God who exercises justice and wrath? Yes. You've got to keep that in balance. Now, on the other end of the extreme, if you um, elevate God's wrath and you elevate God's justice and that's all you talk about is His anger against sin, you can be out of balance and, and have people living in fear that God's going to smite them and you're out of balance with His compassion. The beauty is that when you look at the cross of Christ, when you see Jesus on the cross 
It's a perfect union of these two characteristics of God. Because when Jesus died on the cross, it was the full expression of God's love towards sinners. The ultimate expression of love, mercy, and compassion when Jesus died on the cross. But at the same time, it was the ultimate expression of justice and wrath and punishment because God is bringing all of the punishment that we deserve, all the punishment against our sin, all of His wrath against our ungodliness. It comes upon Jesus in those moments when He's hanging on the cross because He's bearing our sin. He's taking the punishment. So you see God's love mercy and compassion and God's justice, wrath and punishment coming together in the cross. And so you see a beautiful expression of how God deals with the sin problem through Jesus. Now, we also find out from Scripture, another interesting attribute, that God is a jealous God. As a matter of fact, if you look at the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, uh, the first commandment, obviously, you know, you shall have no other gods before me. Let's look at Exodus 25, verse 5. Well, let's start in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. I, the Lord, am a jealous God. You also find this in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4. In Deuteronomy, chapter 4, you find out that God is a consuming God, a consuming fire. Deuteronomy 4, 24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. A jealous God, a consuming fire. Now, what are we to make of this? That God is a jealous God. Because aren't we taught growing up that jealousy is a bad trait? You don't want to be jealous. You don't want to be envious. You don't want to be greedy. That's, that's a negative, sinful trait in human beings. And so here the Scripture talks about God having a trait that we would look at as humans and say, well, that doesn't quite make sense. Why, why would God be jealous? Well, let's understand what it really means. God is jealous for His glory. Meaning that as the absolute supreme sovereign of the universe, he's not going to share his glory with anyone. He does not want to share his glory with idols. He does not want to share his glory with us as humans. He is a God who has a passion for his glory, and he's jealous and zealous for his name. So he wants his name to be protected. He's zealous to guard the purity of his name, and he's also jealous for us as his people. Think about this as a husband. As a good husband to my wife, Dawn, if some guy came up and started flirting with her and started trying to come on to her and I just sat back and said, oh, that's just kind of the way people are these days and yeah, let her go have an affair and, and it's not that big of a deal, would I be that good of a husband? I would be kind of passive. I would be kind of weird. No, as a husband, I would be jealous to protect the dignity of my wife. I would be jealous to protect that relationship. I would be jealous to protect the name of our, of our family against any intruder that would want to come in and ruin that. And so on a human level, in a sense, it's a good thing for me as a husband to have a jealousy in a positive sense to protect the honor of my wife. In the same way, God, who's holy, has the right to protect His name as a jealous God, as a jealous God. Now, as we talk about the characteristics of God, 
one of the things that I want us to talk about is a controversy that's been brewing for, oh, probably about 30 years now. It's, very, it's becoming very popular. Um, it's called open theism or the openness or process theology. Uh, maybe you've heard of open theism or the openness of God. It's a direct challenge to what we call the immutability of God. Um, so one of the other characteristics of God is his immutability. Now, I know that's a big word, but let's just talk about what immutability is. That's the theological term, the immutability of God. The layman term, the, the, the actual term that we would all understand is this. God does not change. God does not change. He does not change in His being. He does not change in His perfections. He does not change in His purposes. He does not change in His promises. God does not change or change His mind or shift like the shadows. Malachi 3.6, flat out, God says, I am the Lord. I do not change. James 1.17, God says, I do not shift like the shadows. I do not change. Numbers 23.19 says, God's not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. He's going to do what he says he's going to do. God does not change. Now, here's the question about open theism because open theism has this view of God that is not scriptural. We would say that open theism or the openness movement or process theology, whatever you want to call it, open theism is a heresy. So we're going to downright call open theism a heresy. Let me give you the tenets of open theism so you can know what they believe. Now, we talk about God being omniscient. It's one of those omni words. Omniscient means God knows all things. So the question is, does God really know all things? Does God know all things that have happened in the past? Well, well, yes, they would say, yes, God knows all things that have happened in the past because they've already happened and God learned that and saw that and knows that. They would say, God knows all things that are going on right now in the present because He can see things happening in the present. So God knows all things that have happened in the past. God knows all things that are happening in the present. But here's where open theism gets off the rails. They have a qualified omniscience. Since the future has not happened yet, they say God does not know the future choices of His creatures. So out of all the 7 billion people that live on planet Earth and all the choices that 7 billion people could make on a daily basis 10 years from now, 5 minutes from now, 20 years from now, 100 years from now, since those choices are, are potential and haven't happened yet, the open theist says God does not know what's going to happen. God gets knowledge in when those things happen and He learns knowledge. What we would say, the Bible teaches that God has exhaustive knowledge exhaustive knowledge and what we mean by exhaustive knowledge is that number one exhaustive means everything god has all knowledge of past he has all knowledge of present and god has all knowledge of future events and those future events both actual and potential so what are actually going to happen and what are going to potentially happen because obviously we have 
prophecies in Scripture, right? If God doesn't know the future, then how are we to trust the book of Revelation? The book of Revelation tells us what's going to happen. Jesus is going to come back. There's going to be a great white throne judgment. There's going to be a resurrection of the dead. There's going to be um, the, the, the throwing of the dragon, Satan, into the, to the lake of fire. There, there's definite things that God has prophesied that happen that are going to actually happen. But there's also potentialities of all different, millions and millions of potentialities that could happen from all the billions of people that live on planet Earth. And so we're saying that the Bible teaches that God has exhaustive knowledge of past, present, future events, both actual and potential. Now, I've just spent a lot of time talking about the holiness, the majesty, the sovereignty, the power of God as creator. And one of the, um, the chief attributes that we know that God is, is that He's the sovereign King. We would say God is the sovereign King of the universe. And as the King, He rules, He reigns, He's on His throne in heaven. As a matter of fact, if you look at the book of Revelation, there's over 70 references to the throne of God. God, all throughout the Scriptures, is the authoritative monarch who sits on His throne and He rules and He reigns. This image of God being a king doesn't sit well with those who believe in open theism. They reject the metaphor of God being a king. They don't like that. What they would rather prefer is God is more of an at-risk parent. Meaning that Yes, God is fatherly, and yes, he's kind of in control, but he takes a lot of risk with his kids because he really doesn't know what his kids are going to do, and he kind of lets them go out there and have freedom, and they can do this or they can do that, and he's, he's kind of in control, but he takes a lot of risks. He took a risk when he created Adam and Eve because he wasn't sure what they were going to do. He's an at-risk parent. That is not the biblical view of God. Yes, God is a father, but he's the heavenly father. He rules and reigns. Now, so they reject God being king. They reject God's omniscience of all events. And they also elevate love as the highest standard, the highest attribute of God. Remember what I said, that we can't pit one attribute of God against another, that they are all part of God's character, and when we begin to, to make a hierarchy of God's character, one above the other, we get out of balance. Well, they elevate love as the preeminent attribute of God, and basically they say that love means that God's vulnerable, and He takes chances, and He takes risks, and to truly love people, He needs to give them freedom to act and he needs to limit himself in his future knowledge. Because he loves people so much, God is going to purposely limit his knowledge of future events to give people absolute freedom because after all, love is his greatest characteristic. And then also, they elevate libertarian free will, absolute freedom, as the ultimate, ultimate, I guess, in, um, in human nature. Humanity, in their view, bears the primary responsibility for shaping and developing the future. 
So God has given humans this amazing authority and freedom to act, and God doesn't know what they're going to do. Now, we'll talk about this as we move further on in these lectures. Does God give humans freedom? Yes. We are free creatures. We have creaturely freedom. But we need to define terms, and we'll come to that as we get further on in the, in the lectures of what actual free will and libertarian freedom and, and choices are all about. But in the open theist view of, of things, it's an extreme view of free will that God has given humans so much free will that he doesn't even know what they're going to choose. And so we have to reject open theism as a heresy because it does not give us a full picture of the attributes of God. Now, let me just give you a litany of verses. I'm purposely going to give you some verses of Scripture that the Bible teaches about God's absolute sovereignty, God's absolute knowledge, God's kingly authority. If you do not have a solid understanding of the sovereignty of Almighty God as the bedrock foundation of your belief system, you are going to be shallow in your faith. You're not going to understand a lot of things that the Bible teaches. And so I want to build this foundational bedrock that you must believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. And so let me give you some passages of Scripture. Psalm 33, 8-11. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Do you hear the sovereignty there? His counsel, his plans, his purposes are going to stand forever. He's going to accomplish what he's going to accomplish. He's the creator. He's the sovereign. He can frustrate the plans of people. He is absolutely in charge. Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. There's no outside force coercing God to act. God does what he pleases. God is the potter. God is the creator. We are the clay. We are the creation. So we don't dictate God's behavior. God is the one who does as he pleases. Proverbs 16, 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. God has made everything for its purpose. There's a purpose for everything, and God has made it, even wicked. Proverbs 16, 33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The throwing of dice, everything is under God's sovereign control. Isaiah 14, 27, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it, who will turn it back? His hand is stretched out, and who's going to turn it back? If God has decreed something, if God has purposed something, who can stop it is what Isaiah is saying. Who can, who can take God's stretched out arm and His purposes and, and stop God from acting? Isaiah 29, verse 16. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made it should save its maker? He did not make me. Or the thing formed save him who formed it? He has no understanding. This passage of Scripture is saying God's the potter. God's the shaper. God's the creator. We have no right to talk back to him. We weren't the ones that are the creator. We're the creation. 
Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I am God, there's no other. God declares the beginning from the end. Okay, so the beginning from the end, God declares it. God knows it. His counsel, His purpose is going to stand. So that verse right there just nullifies, shatters open theism. God declares the beginning from the end. He's the Creator. He knows all things. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God's in control of, of, of the seasons. He's in control of the governments. He's in control of how things operate in our universe. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God's purpose is going to be accomplished. Job 42.2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God can do all things. No purpose or plan of His can be stopped or thwarted. And then Ephesians 1.11, probably the most powerful scripture. In Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. God works all things all things according to the counsel of His will. Now, we talk about God's sovereignty. We talk about open theism as a heresy. Let's talk about God's providence. This is another topic that you may not have talked about a lot in your Christian studies, the providence of God. What do we mean when we talk about the providence of God. Older generations talked a lot more about the providence of God. We don't talk about that much these days. What is providence? Well, what we mean by providence is this, is that God basically controls all things. Let's see if I can find my notes here. I've got a good definition of providence if I can find it here. Well, maybe I didn't bring it in with me. It's from the Heidelberg Catechism. Let me see if I can find it. The Heidelberg Catechism notes. Ah, here we go. I did find the Heidelberg Catechism notes. Yes, the Heidelberg Catechism is one of the catechisms during the Protestant Reformation. It gives a really good definition of the providence of God. And so what we mean by providence is that God is sovereign, but He so works in creation, in the universe, that He directs and determines and guides, and it's kind of His invisible hand moving everything to its, its intended end. The opposite of providence is what we call deism. You may have heard of the term deism. Deism is what the, a lot of the founding fathers believed. It was kind of from the age of reason. It was this whole idea that God's like a clockmaker. Um, God wound up the universe like a clock, and then he sat back and let it go its course. So deism is, is the hands-off God. Yes, he creates. Yes, he's powerful, but he doesn't, he's got better things to do than to deal with his creation. He, he's kind of a hands-off, distant God that, that doesn't really interfere at all. He just kind of lets things take its course. That's deism. That's not biblical. So we'll reject deism as a heresy. And let's talk about the providence 
of God. Let me give you um, the, the Heidelberg Catechism, question 27, question 28 in the Catechism. Um, question 27, what do you mean by the providence of God? So here's the question, what is the providence of God? Here's the answer. Answer, the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yes, and all things come, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. He upholds and governs the universe, so that if a blade of grass grows, it's because God's fatherly hand has ordained that to happen. Nothing happens by chance. Nothing's coincidental. God governs and guides everything according to His fatherly hand. Now, question 28 says this, what advantage, what advantage is it to us to know that God is created and by His providence still upholds all things? Okay, so, so what? So what? That God is superintending and, and, and working in creation and governing and guiding? What benefit is that to us? Here's the answer. That we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father, that nothing shall separate us from His love, since all creatures are so in His hand, that without His will they cannot so much as move. So God sovereignly, providentially, with His invisible hand of grace and power, superintends, guides, governs the universe. Now, let's talk about compatibilism. Because compatibilism... Let me just write this word down. Because at first glance, you may think to yourself, now, wait a minute. That, that, that sounds like God. And that makes it sound like kind of like we're robots. And then everything is determined. So why live my life and why do anything? Why pray? Why do evangelism? Why, why do anything? Because if God's absolutely sovereign, He's governing everything, everything, we just must be passive, mindless robots that are just doing the script that God has written for us and we have no freedom. Let's talk about compatibilism. Compat, compatibilism. Make sure I spell it right. It's a theological term, compatibilism. What compatibilism says is God's sovereignty is not at odds with human responsibility. What compatibilism says is that God's sovereignty or God's providence works together with human responsibility. We may not fully understand it, but these two things, God's sovereignty and human responsibility, they're not in conflict. They work together. Both are taught in the Bible. Let me give you an example of compatibilism. The story of Joseph. If you're familiar with the story of Joseph in Genesis chapters 37 through chapter 50, the end of the, the book of Genesis, Joseph is left for dead by his brothers. His brothers conspire to leave him in the pit. Um, they take his coat of many colors back to Jacob, the dad, and they lie about it. And so they evil, they're, they're evil, they're wicked, they're malicious. They, of their own free will, these brothers, do an evil act to Joseph by leaving him for dead, selling him into slavery. They are utterly responsible for doing that evil action, Joseph's brothers. So we have to ask the question, 
who's responsible for the sin in, against Joseph? His brothers. His brothers committed the sin. His brothers are responsible. They did that out of their own free choices. Okay, but did God have a plan and a purpose that was used within the human choices that his brothers made? Yes. Genesis 50, verse 20. Listen to what Joseph says at the end of his life when he reconciles with his brothers and and there's been forgiveness. Listen to what he says. As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant evil. So you meant evil in your heart of hearts, brothers, you and your human responsibility, you did evil. You meant evil. You're guilty of the evil. You're responsible for the evil. You did it. You did the evil. You meant it for evil. But God, in His sovereignty, meant it for good. So which is it? Is it evil or is it good? Because selling Joseph into slavery is evil. It's guilty. But God says, hey, this is a good thing that that they did this evil because the ultimate outcome is the salvation of many. That's what the text says to bring about that many people should be kept alive, saved as they are today, through the famine. So there's a human choice that's evil. They're guilty of it. But God says that human choice they made was meant for good. Something evil was meant for good because it brought about a greater purpose. Now, who is the author of the evil? It's not God. God's not the author of evil. Who did the evil? the brothers. So God can never be charged with doing evil himself. God takes the evil and makes good out of it. So here you see compatibilism, human responsibility, doing evil actions that God ordained to have good come out of it. So let's just ask the question about evil. Let me give you another theological word. I told you this was going to be one of the most difficult sessions for us together. It's the term theodicy. Theodicy asks the question, what's the the problem of evil? Why is there evil in the world? Why is there evil? Why is there suffering? How do we deal with evil in the world? What's our answer to that? That's, That's the whole idea of theodicy. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there evil in the world? Why are there natural disasters? Why is there crime? Why is there hurricanes? Why is there war? If if God is sovereign, if God is powerful, then why is there evil? And a lot of times, you know, people will say, why do bad things happen to good people? Wrong question. Should be turned the other way around. Why do good things happen to bad people? It shows an elevated view of man. We'll get to that later. There's two wrong reasons, okay, with this whole issue of theodicy, of, of the issue of evil. Okay, why is there evil? Why do bad things happen? Why is there suffering? Okay, wrong answer number one. Okay, so wrong answer number one that we know biblically. Wrong answer number one, it's not because somehow God's not, so- God's not sovereign. 
I mean, we've just spent tons of verses looking at the fact that God is sovereign. So can we say the reason that there's evil and suffering is because God must not be in control. God's not sovereign. God's not powerful enough to stop it. Can we make that argument from Scripture? I mean, the Bible is overwhelmingly clear that God governs everything. So evil and suffering doesn't exist because somehow God's not powerful enough to stop it. I mean, you've got Matthew verse 10, chapter 10, verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? God knows even when birds die. Lamentations 3.37. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. I mean, we went through tons and tons of verses to show that God is sovereign. So wrong answer number one as to why there's evil and suffering, it's not because somehow God's passively sovereign. He's not sovereign enough to stop it. He's not powerful. Okay? He is powerful. He is sovereign. The question then is why does He not stop it? Why does He allow it? Okay? That's the, that's the real question. Second wrong answer then must be, okay, let's buy God is powerful. God is sovereign. But he still chooses not to stop evil. So wrong question number two must be, God is not loving. Or God must even be evil himself. God just must not love people. If God is powerful enough to stop evil and powerful enough and sovereign enough to stop suffering and he doesn't do it, he must just not love people. Now, what does the scripture say about that? 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Good and upright is the Lord, Psalm 25, 8. Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good. And we could go on and on and talk about how God is merciful, God is compassionate. So two wrong answers to the problem of evil is, number one, God must not be powerful or sovereign enough, or God must not be loving enough. And we can reject both of those and say, absolutely, God is sovereign and powerful, and absolutely, God is loving. So the question then becomes, why? Why are these things happening? Why are there natural disasters? Now, we can go back to the curse. One of the answers is because Adam and Eve sinned back in the Garden of Eden, there was a curse that was brought upon the entire human race where the entire human race was cursed and even the creation was cursed. So we, ha we, we live in a cursed world. And this cursed world means that the earth itself is under a curse. And so natural disasters and flooding and tornadoes and all those types of things and cancer are part of the curse. And then even the sin, um, when, when we have war and genocide and, and rape and, and violence and, and domestic violence and child abuse, all those things are a result of the fall. And so one of the answers is, is that God has ordained sin to enter the world and there are natural consequences from that sin because we live in a cursed world. People make sinful choices the earth is under a corruption and the natural outflowing of people sinning and the earth being under a curse means that we are just going to live in a sinful and cursed world. Now, one of the key passages of Scripture 
that helps us understand this is Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are some times where we just don't know why something happened. It's the secret things that belong to God. God is under no obligation to reveal everything to us. We're the creation. He's the creator. And there are some things that God has chosen to withhold revealing to us. Why did these things happen? We may never know why. And that's the huge question we always ask. The the big question we ask when when there's evil and suffering is, is why is this happening to me? Or why did that happen? Or why didn't God stop it? Or, or, Or God must not love me. Or God must not be powerful enough. Why, why, why? And those are legitimate questions. As a pastor, we help people struggle through those questions and we want to be sensitive. But at the end of the day, I can't give an answer because I don't know why. I don't know why God allowed it. But I will say this. Some people say, well, why doesn't God just stop all the sin? Why doesn't God just stop all the suffering? And here's what I'd say. God's too loving to do that. And they look at me like, what do you mean God's too loving to do that? If, if God were to stop all the sinning and God were to stop all the evil, then he'd have to destroy every single person on the face of the earth right now. The best way to get rid of sin is to get rid of sinners. And so we'll just kill everybody right now and then there'd be, there'd be no sin. But God is too compassionate to do that. He holds out the opportunity for repentance. And only through Christ can these things be redeemed. And so when things happen bad, when we go through trials, we often struggle with the why, but, but, but two things. Number one, it should draw us closer to God, more to the who, okay, who it is that we're trying to get closer to. And then it should draw us to repentance or to, well, maybe not understanding, but, but maybe growth. Maybe God is trying to grow our faith. Maybe God is doing something in our hearts to draw us closer to Him. And so that's the most important thing. Tragedy occurs as a way for us to grow closer to God. And so we may not know why there's sin and suffering. The important thing that we need to do is draw close to the who. And we do know this, for the Christian, Romans 8, 20 thing, God works out all things for good for those who love and who have been called according to His purpose. So if you've been called according to His purpose and you love God, that is a Christian, all things work together for the good. And that may be different. The good that we think of may be different than God's good, but one thing we can trust as a believer is this, as a Christian. God is good. God does all things for His glory. And for the Christian, He will never leave you nor forsake you. That doesn't mean you don't go through pain. doesn't mean you don't go through trials and struggles. doesn't mean that you don't go through heartache. But it does mean that God is there with you through it. God is doing a work in your heart. And you may never know what the purpose is until we get to heaven. But God is good. God is powerful. God is loving. And God does all things for His glory. 